Luke chapter 18, we're continuing our series in the book of Luke, entitled Lost and Found, Stories of Redemption from the Gospel of Luke, and this morning's message is Lost and Found, the Tax Collector, chapter 18. I think this message certainly fits within the series, but also is a good message, I think, to start our new year. For there are truths in this that our Lord brought that I think are truths that I know I need to hear and I trust we all need to hear as well. Trusting the Lord to use this this morning. You know, there are various types of sins in the Bible. There are all different types of sin and all sin is failure to comply with the good that God calls us to, the right requirements of God. And there are different types of sin. There are some sins that are more serious than others. All are very serious, for the wages of sin is death, regardless of its degree. But there are some sins that are particularly insidious. This morning we're going to talk about one sin that is a very, very serious sin. As I examine Scripture... I find that this sin is treated in a way that is somewhat different than others. Our Lord, in dealing with this sin, though He was gentle and patient with many other sins, serious about them, but patient and gentle, this sin I never see Him being gentle with. He's always very strict and very firm. This sin is a serious sin that if we persist in, we will effectively be cut off from God. This sin is a sin that can make its way into the most well-behaved people and hide there undetected. Yet if these well-behaved people, like you guys and me, relatively speaking, relatively speaking, persist in this sin, again, we will cut ourselves off from God. It's a very terrible and insidious Sin. Anyone have a guess on the sin that I'm talking about? I heard it. The sin of self-righteousness. The sin of self-righteousness. That's what this text and this teaching from our Lord is about this morning. Before we look at the Word of God, let's pray because I think the Lord wants to speak to us. Lord, we just thank You for Your Word. Lord, we thank You for Your truth. Lord, we thank You for Your redemptive activity in our lives and in our midst. Lord, even facing this horrible sin, Lord, we are not without hope, for You are a God of mercy and grace. And You gave this teaching hundreds and hundreds of years ago, not just for those who heard that day, but for us today. We thank You for that, Lord. Thank You for Your truth and Your mercy. And we ask You, Lord, that by the ministry of Your Spirit, that You would minister Your truth to us this morning. That we would hear You. We would be changed and You would be glorified. Lord, do this miracle once again, Lord, because it is a miracle, because I'm not worthy, I'm not able, we are not as well, yet You are God of mercy. So, Lord, we ask You to, to do this. We thank You for it. In Jesus' name, Amen. Amen. 
chapter 18, starting in verse 9. Speaking of Jesus, it says, He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray. One, a Pharisee, and the other, a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled. But the one who humbles himself will be exalted. Luke 18, 9-14 Once again, we have our Savior teaching us in the Gospel of Luke. Once again, we have the two characters of the Pharisee and the tax collector, or the publican in some translations. The Pharisee of the day was a member of the spiritual and social elite. He was someone who essentially had made it socially and had made it religiously as well. They were the devoted ones, the ones who were really serious about obeying God and following God. They were the ones that people looked up to. The tax collector would have been very different. The tax collector of that day is different than a tax collector today. For a tax collector of that day was basically someone who made their money by skimming off of the taxes and collected those taxes not for the nation of Israel, but for the Roman nation. So they were hated. They were outcasts. And part of their position as outcasts lent itself to a lifestyle of licentiousness. Basically, they were they considered themselves outside of the promises of God and, and lived outside of those promises in, in licentiousness and partying and so forth. So these two characters are two stark contrasts and the Savior uses this sort of contrast over and over again in the Gospels. As we've seen before, these two stark contrasts are not just for the purpose of a good story though. The Lord wants to communicate to us by using these two sort of characters. George Whitfield, the the famous 18th century evangelist who's buried nearby in Newburyport, has this to say about this passage. The parable of the publican and Pharisee is but, but, as it were, a glass or a mirror wherein we may see the different disposition of all mankind. For all mankind may be divided into two general classes. Either they trust wholly in themselves or in part that they are righteous. And then they are Pharisees. Or they have no confidence in the flesh, are self-condemned sinners. And then they come under the character of the publican just now described. 
And we may add also that the different reception that these men meet with points out to us in lively colors the different treatment the self-justified and self-condemned criminal will meet with at the terrible day of judgment. Everyone that exalts himself shall be humbled. And he that humbles himself shall be exalted. So we have a contrast once again. The publican and the Pharisee. And I think the Lord wants to teach us a few things through this. But I'm trusting God to, to teach us this morning. One, I believe He wants to expose our self-righteousness. The Lord has given this passage to expose self-righteousness. And I think that applies to us. I think He wants to expose our self-righteousness. I don't know about you, but I know I'm self-righteous. And I need the truth of this passage to apply to my life. And if you're like me, I think the same truth applies as well. So I believe He wants to expose our self-righteousness too. I believe He also wants to invite those who are the self-humbled to come and to find forgiveness and salvation. To find the exaltation that He promises to those who are self-humbled. And thirdly, I think He wants to give us fresh motivation that will flow from grasping these truths to tell others about the wonder of God's ways. Really, to sum it up at the end of Jesus' teaching, it says, God, it says, for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Lord starts out this passage, he's this actually before the Lord speaks, Luke comments on this parable, on this teaching. He says, This parable was told to those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. It's interesting those two are linked together. This parable is for those who trusted that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. He, he links them, those together, and certainly we see it in the Pharisee. And I believe he links those together because they are linked together. The reality is, if we are self-righteous, we will treat others with contempt. If we find our righteousness and our satisfaction in ourselves, we will be... be by default, treating others with contempt. I think we can kind of reverse that too and say if we have lack of love for others in our hearts, if we are contemptuous in any way toward others, if we look down on others in any way, it probably is because we are self-righteous. These two things go together. So there's a cure in this passage for the self-righteous in many ways. There's a cure in this passage for those like me who lack love for others. Do you want to love others more? Do you recognize that you need to love others more? Do you recognize you need to respect others more? Well, I think a cure is to go after self-righteousness and the truth of this passage. And so we see this Pharisee who is contemptuous of others and self-righteous. And he goes up to the temple to pray. The temple was a glorious, large building and Inside that temple was the Holy of Holies, the place in the very inner part of the temple behind a curtain. And in there, there was the mercy seat, the tabernacle, the place they only went in once a year where the presence of God dwelt. It symbolized and was the presence of God amidst the people. Then there was the Holy of Holies just outside where regular worship just for the priest went on. And then outside of that, the area of sacrifice in a large basin was the inner court 
that was kind of the close-up place for most believers. If you weren't a member of the priestly class, that's as close as you got. Then beyond that was another court, the outer court, that was further away. And so this Pharisee comes in to the temple. He comes up to the temple. This is the place where God Himself dwells. The Pharisee comes to be before God. And he stands up by himself, probably in the inner courts. In a sense, separating himself from others. Standing up. And he prays. And how does he pray? God, I thank You that I am not like other men. Extortioners, unjust, adulterers. Or even like this tax collector, perhaps looking further back. Perhaps seeing the tax collector on the way in. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. And so he prays that way. It's interesting. It's not really prayer though, is it? He's not really talking to God. I mean, he says, I thank you, God. But then his whole focus of his prayer is himself. That he's not like other people. Thank you, God, that I'm not like these other people, like these tax collectors, extortioners, unjust adulterers. I don't do evil things. I don't, I don't disobey the law. Everything my parents ever told me to do, I've pretty much done. Everything the law says to do, I've, I've done. I've not done anything wrong. And not only that, but I do everything pretty much right. I go beyond the normal requirements. I fast twice a week. Not just once a year. Twice a week. And I tithe all that I get. And so his prayer is really a celebration of himself. He's celebrating himself. He's not praying. And it's really comical, isn't it? I mean, if you think about it, really probably no one ever would do that. Jesus is using this story to illustrate something. No one ever would, I mean, go up and pray that way. Can you imagine someone doing that? Lord, I thank You that I'm not like other men. But I think the Savior told this story not so much to say the Pharisee really did that, but to get at the reality behind self-righteous people. Because self-righteous people usually are smart enough to know not to vocalize it. Not to proclaim it. But they think it. Don't they? And aren't your thoughts and my thoughts in our self-righteousness just as ridiculous? But we don't recognize it as such? Because we don't vocalize it, it doesn't sound so ridiculous. But we think it. We think, God, thank You that I'm not like that other person. I'm so happy in who I am and how much better I am than those other people. Don't we do that? I think we do. I was just noticing this past week with Saddam Hussein's execution. Just the temptation to, to kind of look at Saddam to make myself feel better. I mean... There was justice done, I believe, in that and everything. I'm not trying to say anything about that. But, but wasn't there the temptation to think of how bad Saddam was to make ourselves feel better? In some ways, don't we like having Saddams and Hitlers around? Because we can always say, at least I'm not like that. We can compare ourselves to Saddam and, and think pretty good about ourselves. Isn't that the same thing here? Lord, I thank You that I'm not like other men. I'm not like Saddam or Hitler. I'm a pretty good guy. I go to church on Sunday. I'm pretty good to my family. I've got it together. I can keep a job. Don't, don't we do that? I, I do. I don't know about you. And so the Pharisee and his actions are there to illustrate what is inside of each one of us. That we are self-righteous. I know I am. 
And as I prepared this, I was just thinking about different things. One area I see self-righteousness work out in my life is in relating to my children. And I think for those of us who have kids, that's where we're going to see it mainly. Well, for me, I know it's relating to my wife and relating to my kids. Because I'm not like the Pharisee. I don't tend to go out in the temple and, and display it for everybody. I'm smart enough to know that I've got to kind of hide it. But, you know, with my kids and my wife, I can't. It comes out. I guess I feel secure enough with them. And so I see self-righteousness with my children. In particular, I, I grew up with pretty high standards of how you take care of your things and being orderly and, and a work ethic, working hard. Those are things I grew up with. You, you take care of your things. The sum of all righteousness is to make sure that you don't break your stuff and to make sure that, that you have the same clothes you had 20 years ago still in good shape. Matter of fact, until recently, I still had the same shirt it was just like this shirt, actually. Same shirt that I wore in my high school yearbook until recently. It, it finally got so threadbare I had to get rid of it. But, but you know, there was, there was pride in that. And, and I see it come out when dealing with the kids when they don't do that, when they don't, maybe don't work as hard as they, I think they should or, or they break something. I mean, right away I'm thinking, I never did that. I, I, we took care of our stuff. Look, I can show you. I, still, I mean, until recently... I have this, had the same clock radio from eighth grade until, until very recently. Finally, we had to get rid of it. You know, and so I'm, it comes out. And sometimes it's not all that funny, actually. I mean, I can have a real attitude with, with my kids. I can be so self-righteous. And some of my ugliest moments in dealing with my children are those self-righteous moments. When I'm holding them to a standard because... I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. I pick up after me. I, keep my, I make my bed in the morning. I still have my high school shirt. I do the same thing. Now, you may have your particular area like that, that you are self-righteous. That's one for me. Another way I notice my self-righteousness coming out and all its ridiculousness is when someone implies some sort of blame towards me. I think for a lot of us, that's when we see. How do we deal with blame when we're blamed for something? Particularly when we don't think we did it. How do we deal with that? That shows our heart. I know for me, again, with, with my family, probably the area where I show it the most is when, when Peg brings an observation about my parenting. They say, actually, if there's one area you don't ever want to touch is don't ever complain to somebody about their kids to them. Because people are sensitive. Well, I mean, I'm not recommending that, that as a proverb for us at all. I think that is like that because of self-righteousness. And I know for me, when Peg wants to bring an observation about my parenting, I, I resist hearing that. And, and I, I just think of different circumstances, different conversations we, we have. I may not appear self-righteous, but I know I am because as she starts saying, Hun, you know, do you think maybe you should get a little more time with so-and-so or something like that? I'll listen and I'll, and I'll act good, but I start squirming in my seat. I start squirming. And then I'm looking for an in. I'm looking for a way in the course of the conversation to kind of redirect it away from myself and to say, well, the real problem is they are not responding. Or the real problem is, is you're not spending enough time. You're not doing what I asked you to do. I'll deflect and do that. And, and I won't even know I'm doing it, really, till afterwards, till I have to prepare a message on it. And, and think... Wow, I do this, don't I? As a matter of fact, I found myself last night asking some questions about self-righteousness and I had fresh motivation to address it in my life because of this message. Thank God. But we do that. 
we can act so self-righteously. And as I said in the introduction, this is a sin that works its way into well-behaved people. And I think it would be a chief sin among God's people. Self-righteousness. And it can creep in and we may not even recognize it. But I think a sign of self-righteousness in our lives is contempt for others. And it doesn't even have to be that bad. I think a sign of self-righteousness in our lives can be lack of love for others. Lack of love for the lost can often be driven by self-righteousness. It works its way into our lives. It has its effect. It may seem subtle to us, but it really isn't subtle to God. It is just as ridiculous as the Pharisee standing up in the temple and thanking God that He's not like other men. It's that ridiculous in God's sight. Though we may hide it, though no one else may see our thoughts, that's how it appears to the Lord. We are like that Pharisee. And the sad reality is if we persist, that sin will have terrible effects. So we have the Pharisee and his sin coming to the temple. And then we have the tax collector coming to the temple. What happens with the tax collector? What does he do? How does he pray? Where does he stand? He's standing far off. He's standing probably in the outer court, back in some corner not feeling worthy at all to even be there. And he doesn't lift up his eyes. He can't even lift up his eyes to look towards the temple. His head is down. I imagine he's probably there and his eyes are probably full of tears. He's probably making a puddle underneath them as he weeps. And he has no confidence in himself. There's no mention of himself really in that prayer. There's no, thank you God, I'm not like this other guy, or at least I'm not as bad as Saddam. He doesn't say that. There's no reference to himself other than he sees himself as a sinner. Some translations say, the sinner. And that's probably a better way to translate it. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He sees himself the other way around. Instead of being there comparing himself to others, saying, I'm better than this other guy, he sees himself as worse than others. He sees himself as the sinner. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. He is the lowest person in his eyes there in the temple grounds. And his plea is not a celebration of self. He says, God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Be merciful to me, the sinner. Matter of fact, the, the, that word, be merciful to me, is also rightly trans, translated, propitiate me, the sinner. That word is a word that we don't use a whole lot, so the translation is be merciful to me. But it's a word that means put away wrath. He's recognizing that he is justly condemned by a holy God. There's no, there's no wiggling there. There's no squirming out of his just punishment. He's recognizing, I am the sinner. And your just anger to me is right. And so he says, God, propitiate me. God, be merciful to me, the sinner. Put away your just wrath that I deserve. And he can't even lift his head up. He's beating his chest in mournful repentance before God. What a stark contrast with the Pharisee. How different his reaction. How different he is than the Pharisee 
and how he responds, how he relates to God in the temple. Instead of celebrating himself, he's saying guilty as charged. Guilty as charged. If you had told that tax collector at that moment, do you know that the wages of sin is death? That the punishment, the consequences of sin is eternal separation from God in what we call hell? He would have said, yes, I know and I deserve it. Matter of fact, you don't even know the half of it. I am the sinner. I have sinned against God. It is a huge contrast, a stark contrast with the Pharisee. And sad to say, though by grace I have my moments of being like the tax collector, more often than not I recognize that I'm like the Pharisee. Rather than humbling ourselves, as the tax collector does, often we do just the opposite. We're seeking to exalt ourselves. Now you may be thinking, wait a second, I'm a believer. I know that on the judgment day, I'm not going to be there thinking like the Pharisee. I'm not going to be saying, God, I, I did all this stuff in life and you know, receive me because I did what was right. I was a good guy. I, was, I, I did what I was told and I was kind and, and I'm better than Saddam. I'm not going to do that. Now, I trust that's true of you on that day by grace. That'll be true. But let me ask, if you plan to do it that day, you do it today? When you're relating to others, do you do that? When someone accuses you of something, either justly or unjustly, do you fight tooth and nail to justify yourself? Or do you do what you plan to do by grace on the judgment day? Christ alone is my righteousness. Christ alone is my forgiveness. Christ alone is my boast and my hope. You plan to do that on the judgment day, I do by grace. But do I do it today? Do I do it when Peg comes to me and says, Hun, I have some observations about parenting. I have some things I think might help in our parenting. Do I respond in humility where Christ is my only boast and hope? Or do I fight tooth and nail to justify myself? I think most, most of us do fight tooth and nail. And many of our conflicts in marriage and in life come because we're doing just that. We will not allow anybody to think of us in any way inappropriately, any lower way. I will not allow this person to lower me. I will not allow them to have this opinion. I will not allow someone to tell me that I actually need correction in my parenting. How dare you accuse me of that? How dare you suggest that I am deficient in some way? Don't you know who I am? And there we are in the temple. I thank you, God, that I'm not like other men. Exalting ourselves instead of humbling ourselves. We claim that we're going to do it on the judgment day. I think we demonstrate that by learning to do it on this day and the next day. Making Christ alone our boasts. Making the mercy of God alone our hope. You see, when we behave that way, we are functionally denying Jesus Christ. We're functionally denying the atonement. We're functionally denying, in in practice denying, that we need a Savior. We're saying, I don't need a Savior. I am the faultless one. Do not bring an accusation against me. We're denying that. We're being like the Pharisee, not the tax collector. 
the Pharisee, I mean the tax collector in this story, called himself the sinner. He had a view of himself, I believe, in the story, that he was the worst of sinners. We know the Apostle Paul called himself that. Near the end of his life, he had grown in Christ, become more like Christ, and yet near the end of his life, he called himself the foremost of sinners or the chief of sinners. He understood that he was a sinful person, he understood that he was the sinner. His awareness of his sin actually grew as he walked with Christ. It's that mindset, I think, that will cause us and enable us to escape from self-righteousness, realizing that we are the sinner. The Savior told us to take the log out of our own eye before we take the speck out of our brother's. And we might just think, well, that's kind of hyperbole, kind of exaggeration to make a point. No, it isn't. It's reality. Paul wasn't just being pietistic to say, I'm the chief of sinners, because that sounds good and false humility is what we should project. He wasn't saying that, I think, for that reason. He was saying that because it was true. You see, we must understand that the chief of sinners is me. And for you, the chief of sinners is you. We must be aware that as far as we know, we are the worst sinner. Now, we may be tempted to think, no, that's not true. Saddam Hussein was worse than me. What do you know about Saddam Hussein? We know he tortured people, killed people, did some terrible things. That was awful. What do you know about yourself? What do I know about myself? I've never tortured someone at least that bad. My little brother, I think I tortured quite a bit when I was young. Never killed someone, thank God, by grace. Tried to actually once. But I know my thought life. And I know the things that I've thought. I know that I have thought about those sort of things. Matter of fact, I know I've fantasized about those sort of things and dreamed up what I would do and how I would get vengeance and how I would get my way and how when I did it, how I, when I killed the bad guys and did this, I would receive adulation and glory and everyone would say, Hail Paul the Great! I had those sort of thoughts. Have you ever had those sort of thoughts? And what kept me from doing those things? I think it might come down to this, that I never had the power that Saddam Hussein had, so I didn't do it. Thank God for that. So perhaps the only difference between Saddam Hussein and me is a matter of having the power to do what you want. So as far as I know, as far as what I am acquainted with, I am the worst sinner because I know my thoughts. And I know the thousands and millions of thoughts that I have had that have been meditations on terrible things. I don't know Saddam Hussein's thoughts. I just know a few of his actions. So this thing about seeing yourself as the chief of sinners is not just being pietistic, kind of doing the right thing, being spiritual. I think it's reality. And I think it's part of the truth that's behind this parable for us. We need to get that we are the sinner. We are the sinner. And as far as we know, we're the worst of sinners. And our attention needs not to be on how we're better than this other one, but the fact is that we are the sinner. And we are desperately in need of mercy. Desperately in need of mercy. For our sins are clear to God. 
our sins are clear to Him. I just know for myself. I mean, I don't know if you're like this. Maybe I'm the only one. And maybe I'm just kind of crazy. But my thoughts during the day are largely about myself. My meditations during the day are largely about myself. About my glory, my comfort, about me. And yet, Scripture says I'm to love the Lord my God with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love my neighbor as myself. Self comes maybe later with the neighbor. But God comes first. But where are my meditations? I sin every day in my meditations. I'm thinking my thought life as I'm driving about myself and how I want this thing and I want to do this and I want to bring glory to myself. That's sin. And God hears it all and sees it all. And so when we stand in the temple proclaiming how good we are, it is comical. It is ridiculous. And God sees through it all. We must see ourselves as the sinner. See, Jesus promises the one who humbles himself will be exalted, while the one who exalts himself will be humbled. There is wonderful advantage to seeing yourself as the sinner. Because it makes us realize what is reality. It makes us realize that we need a Savior. We need someone else to come and rescue us. We need mercy. We need someone to propitiate God's wrath, to put away His holy and just wrath for our our sin. And you know what? There is someone. It says in the text that this man went down to his house justified. This man went down to his house. He went back home. This tax collector who stood there and could not lift his eyes said, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. He went to his house justified, not the other. He went to his house being declared righteous by a holy God. He went to his house having that list of sins, that endless list, all those thoughts, all those things he did. We don't know what he did. He went to his house having all those things wiped away and being declared righteous and pleasing in God's sight. He who humbles himself will be exalted. And He went to his home justified. And we know the rest of the story. That that propitiation was provided at great cost. That the humblest one of all came and lived a perfect life. The Son was sent by this merciful God. This wonderful and glorious Son we sang about this morning, the pride and joy of the Father, the apple of His eye, the One who infinitely pleased Him, lived this perfect life, and then voluntarily went to the cross to propitiate God's just anger. To put away His just anger towards tax collectors and sinners like the one in the story and like you and like me. Like He did it for all who would receive it. He propitiated the wrath of God. He bore the wrath of God. He took sins on Himself. The Holy One who never sinned, who didn't have a thought life like mine, everything He did pleased the Father. Everything He did was good. He did not deserve condemnation. And yet He humbled Himself below us to bear our sins and to receive the wrath of God. 
And He said on the cross, it is finished. It stands finished. It's done. The wrath of God is propitiated. He died. And then the Father raised Him again saying, I receive His offering. I approve. He pleases Me perfectly. And now all tax collectors who say, God, be merciful to Me, the sinner, have their sins put away and go down to their house justified, declared righteous, declared forgiven, declared as good as the Son. He took on Himself what we deserve so that we may receive what He deserves. The rewards of heaven, eternal life, fellowship with the Father. And so for the tax collectors, there is good news in the Gospel. There is good news. If you are a tax collector this morning, if you recognize that you are the sinner, God has propitiated you. He has had mercy on you in the Son. And you're called to enter into that and the joy of that. You're called to rejoice in your salvation. You're called to go down to your house today, to go home from this place, knowing that you are justified by Him. Rejoicing in that. The one who humbles himself will be exalted. But if you're like the Pharisee, like I often am, you are called to humble yourself. Because if you continue to exalt yourself, you will be humbled. If you continue in these things, on the judgment day, you will have no plea. You will stand condemned. You will stand exposed. All your thoughts, all your actions, all those hidden things are going to be out in the open for all to see. God's just judgment on you will be plain to all. There will be nothing left to stand on. No more exalting in yourself on that day. So humble yourself. Humble yourself today. Recognize that you are the sinner. And receive mercy. Now, for many of us, we've experienced that grace. We've experienced those moments of recognizing that we're the sinner. We've turned. We've received salvation. We're justified now. And we live in this time between the already and not yet where we struggle. And sometimes we're tax collectors and sometimes we're Pharisees. There's hope for us. When we recognize the Pharisee in us, we need to repent and humble ourselves once again. We need to recognize the truth of what the Savior taught here. Here's some, I think, helpful steps to take to grow in becoming like a tax collector. One is, when there's correction brought to you, remember this truth. Remember this passage. Remember the reality that you are the sinner. Remember the reality that the cross has already declared you the worst of sinners. So bad that God the Son Himself had to die to rescue you. But also remember that you are rescued. And you are justified. And when someone comes to bring correction, it could be a spouse. It could be a boss at work. It could be, it could be someone very angry at you and accusing you of things you haven't done. Remember, you are the worst of sinners and yet you are justified. That will have a huge effect 
on how that interaction goes. And when the correction comes, welcome it. Because God will bring good to you. If it does not come to you, seek it. Seek correction. There's a way to grow in humility. Go to your spouse. Perhaps even today. And ask, what would be one area in my life that you've observed, you've seen consistently that, that I need help in? Or maybe ask the question, where in my life has I, have I been self-righteous? You ready? You ready for that? If we're standing on this truth, we'll be able to endure that conversation and grow through it. Remember, God humbles the self-exalted and exalts the self-humbled. If the band could come up as we close. So let us pursue this truth. Let us walk in it. Ask your children, perhaps. How have you seen Dad be self-righteous? Or Mom, how have you seen it in my life? Pursue that. And learn to live as the sinner who is now justified. Learn to live in the mercy of God. And with that also, I think as we grab hold of these truths, God is going to give us a heart for other people. A love for other people. Because I believe that part of why we do not love people often, hold them in contempt, is because of self-righteousness. And as you grab hold of this truth and realize how wonderful it is that the sinner has now been forgiven. Though I had no plea, though I had nothing in myself to stand on, Christ came for me and gave me salvation and rescued me. Now I have Him to stand on. As you are in this place, in that place, I believe you will be motivated, we will be motivated to tell others, to love others. He who has been forgiven much, loves much. He who has been forgiven little, loves little. You recognize that you are the tax collector. I believe the one of the results will be love for others. So let us, because of this truth, remember that God humbles the self-exalted and exalts the self-humbled. Let us pursue truth. Humility is not it's nothing really but the truth. That's all it is. It's embracing the truth, recognizing this is the reality. I am this sinner. And the reality is, is I need a lot of help in my parenting. and I need a lot of help in a lot of areas. That's the reality. You're just being really honest. But God promises to exalt the self-humbled. And so let us pursue humility. Let us pursue the reality of this. And let us trust God to give us hearts to tell others about it as well. Let's pray. Lord, we just thank You for Your teaching. We thank You, Lord, for Your Word. And I pray for Your people this morning, Lord, for all of us, self-included, God. Would You help us to, to dwell in this truth? This year, this coming year, God, would You cause us to put to death self-righteousness? To pursue humility? To grow in our gratefulness for the cross? and our joy and our justification and our love to tell others. Would You do these things, O God? We thank You, Lord. Thank You for Your mercy and Your love and Your kindness and Your commitment to this. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.